Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You may be seated. Let's pray before um, we enter into this time. Father, we ask, as we always ask, for your grace, especially as we come before your word. We need your grace to understand we need your grace to receive. We need your grace to have any sort of inkling of desire to live according to your word. Father, would you make your word clear today? Would you make your word clear today? Would you impart it in the hearts of your people and give us the energy, the courage, and strength to live by it? Again, we ask for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, little kids. I know, you're not little. Let me ask you something. What's the purpose of a chair? To sit. Do we use chairs to put up on the walls as a decoration? You do? You have chairs on the walls? No, right? So, if a chair is not being used to be sit on, would you consider it kind of not being used properly? Right, it has to be sat on. What's the purpose of a lawnmower? Do you use a lawnmower to... Yeah, that's what you use it for. You don't use it to vacuum, do you? That'd be dangerous. What's your purpose? Why were you created? Why were you... Say it again. Yeah, to worship God. You and I have been formed. We've been specifically designed, made with a mind and a heart, a body, an ability to think, specifically with the purpose to worship and praise God. Now here's what Jesus did. Imagine you were all lawnmowers. Right? Because of sin, you all became rusted and old and creaky no gas, no oil, you're just dying in the shack. What Jesus did was renew you. He kind of put oil in your gears, He shined you, He changed the mortar, and He fueled you so that you can do what we were created to do, which is worship God. Make sense? Why were you created, Jason? Not to mow the lawn, to... 
that to the rest of us. Let's go. Yay. Yay? But you still got to listen, right, Timothy? Try to understand as much as you can. Now, it's my experience uh, that there's nothing more pitiful, nothing more painful, no mountain of despair greater than that of living a purposeless existence. On the flip side, there is nothing more fulfilling, nothing more joyful, and nothing more to be envied than that of living a very purposeful existence. To be engulfed in a purpose brings meaning to life. And it's trans-circumstantial. Three years ago, I found myself at the lowest point of my life. The despair I felt wasn't because of any dire circumstances. It wasn't because of any situational or external reasons. I had a job. I had friends. I had my family. But yet, I found myself hopelessly depressed, dejected, and joyless. And in hindsight, I know why. It's because I lost sight of my purpose. I lost sight of what I was created for. I forgot that I was created for God's glory. I forgot that I exist, that I have been made, informed, redeemed, and forgiven, kept in existence even as we speak now, and will be kept in existence unto eternity for His glory. I lost sight of that. Take an inventory of your life. What is it that you are living for? What is the purpose for which you exist? Why do you do the things that you do? What is it that gets you up in the morning? Keeps you doing the things that you do throughout the day? And gives you the peace to go to bed at night to do it all over again tomorrow? Sounds pretty depressing, right? But what is it that gets you up? Why school for you students? Why? You don't have to answer. You don't have to answer. Think about it in your head. Why all the worry about college? Why? Why work? These are very good answers, by the way. Extra cash, yeah. Why anything that you do? Stephen Hawking poses a question that is well worth an answer. He asks the universe, Why does the universe go through all the bother of existing? He just takes it a step further. He's, I don't want to know why I exist. Why does the universe, why do you go through all the bother of existing? What God does for us here through Paul is reveal the mystery of the cosmic purpose of God. It's nothing short of that. It's a mystery that is revealed to us and it unfolds, unfolds for us the cosmic thing that hasn't been known until this point. To grasp this cosmic purpose of God is to answer that very question that Hawkins poses. Also, all the questions that I have posed to you. The universe goes through all the bother of existing. You and I exist 
simply and fully for the glory of God. Listen to today's text. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. That is what is driving God to do anything that He ever does. It's to the praise of His glory. It's so clear, right, in today's text. God, from His infinite storehouse of grace, has lavished upon us wisdom and insight to understand this cosmic purpose. Not, to not only understand, but He has also given us the grace to accept, the grace to desire, the grace to see that God's glory is truly and undeniably the purpose the cause that we must align ourselves to if we are ever going to find meaning in our existence, in our life, to our studies, to our marriage, to our friendships, to our jobs. You must understand this purpose, this cause, and you must align your life to it. For you to gain a meaning for your life. Many Christians ask, what is the will of God? More specifically, what's God's will for my life? You know, we ask that a lot, don't we? And the answer is so in your face, so clear, so inexplicably simple. I believe we ask not because we don't know, but because we don't very much like the answer. We want to hear that His will is in line with our wills. That's what we want to hear. Friends, this is not the right approach. It is unmistakably clear, unmistakably clear from today's text as well as the rest of the entire scriptures that God's will is that He be glorified. What we need to learn to do is to align our wills with God's will. For us to live for any other purpose than that of God's glory, to share the, the illustration... It's like a lawnmower trying to find its purpose in cutting hair. Or the vacuum cleaner trying to find its purpose in baking muffins. Or the hair dryer trying to find its purpose in trimming plants. It's the best I could come up with. No? Alright, it worked for me. You and I know that a lawnmower most gloriously fulfills its purpose when it mows lawns. The vacuum cleaner most gloriously fulfills its purpose when it picks up dirt. And the hair dryer most gloriously fulfills its purpose when it dries hair and gives you volume. I don't know. You and I have been chosen before the foundation of the world. You and I have been redeemed from our slave master of sin by the precious blood of Jesus that we may live for the glory of God. To attempt to find purpose 
in anything else, then this purpose will be truly foolish. So long as you live for anything else than God's glory, you will be haunted by thoughts of insignificance, haunted by the gut-wrenching feeling that you're wasting your life, haunted by the ever-increasing dissatisfaction with your life, haunted by nagging thoughts that there must be more, haunted by the constant disillusionment with your everyday activities. Eventually, it will lead you down the path of what modern philosophers call existentialism. Existentialism essentially says there is no purpose for existence, and people are faced with depression, angst, disillusionment, and hopelessness because they are so desperately trying to find a purpose in a world where there is no ultimate purpose. They would conclude that the individual then must find a way themselves to find reason for joy, for meaning, for happiness, apart from any thoughts of a cosmic purpose. Because there is no cosmic purpose. That, my dear friends, is absolute foolishness. The lawnmower exists to, lo- to mow the lawn. Existentialism is like telling the lawnmower that there is no such thing as a lawn. When it is clear that the makeup, its technology, its mechanism has been distinctively fashioned and built because there is a lawn that needs to be mowed. Its very design testifies to the existence of a lawn. You and I have been fashioned to live for God's glory. We've been given minds to grasp truths that set our hearts soaring. No other creature is like that, right? You don't tell a dog you're going to get a bone today and it processes that truth and it becomes excited. That's a purely human thing where you can receive truth and when you grasp it, it sets your heart soaring. We've been given a will that will endure all things to do, or that will do, that will endure all things to do what we deem to be worthy of our efforts. That's why humans are willing to endure incredible suffering, pain, and personal discomforts for a cause they feel is worthy. True. A dog won't do that. It won't put itself through immediate danger, knowing that at the other side of it, it's going to get something. Humans do. We have been given a soul that delights to praise. Oh, are you seeing lemon does? The lemon do that? Maybe it's part human. I don't know. Stop looking at it as human. We have been given a soul that delights to praise. That delights to be a part of something greater than ourselves. That's why there are so many Laker fans in this room. It is our makeup. We want to praise something other than ourselves. We want to be a part of something greater, like four or five more championships. We've been given the capacity to love someone more than ourselves and to understand almost instinctively that loving someone else more than ourselves is not detrimental to our existence, but rather it breeds a kind of eternal beauty, an eternal value, 
worthiness and purpose to our existence. Does it not? You inherently know that. Our very makeup cries out that there is a cosmic purpose. And that purpose, my dear friends, is to glorify God. If you lived at all, you would understand what I'm trying to tell you is consistent with all your experiences. Have we not all experienced that moment in life where we've been given the opportunity to do something for someone other than ourselves? It could have been something as small as taking the time to give directions to someone who's lost. Or helping someone understand a mathematic formula. Giving your lunch to someone who hasn't eaten anything that day. It could be something as big as lending a large sum of money to a family member who needed it. Caring for someone around the clock because they were sick. Or donating your time and money to feed the poor. Now let me ask you, after those instances of doing something for someone else, how many of you felt like you wasted your time? How many of you felt absolutely sick to the stomach for doing something for someone else? Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just did that. How many of you guys felt that way after you helped someone? No? Well, let me ask you. No, no, let me ask you. Next, moving on. <laughs> now, what you felt was an inex- inexplicable sense of joy, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of meaning, a sense of a greater good when you helped another person. You see, in those moments, you have experienced a measure, a foretaste, a sampling of what it would be like to live wholly for someone else other than yourself. And isn't it surprising how good it felt? How right it felt? How meaningful it felt? Speaking from a strictly secular perspective... Who goes to war memorials and snicker and look on pity upon the thousands of graves that are filled with young men and women who gave their lives for the country? No one does this. Because those graves are lined with men and women we admire who lived and died for a cause greater than themselves. Who will look at men and women who have given their talents, money, and lives to the cause of feeding millions of starving children around the world and shake their heads with disgust because you feel like they're wasting their lives. No one. Those soldiers, those men and women who work around the clock, devote their entire lives to feed millions, have something to teach us, don't they? They teach us how noble, how meaningful it truly is to live for someone other than ourselves. Of giving ourselves wholly to the pleasure, peace, and joy of others. Any secular person that has reached a certain level of worldly enlightenment understands and knows that a selfish life is a wasted life. They know that a life lived to bring glory to self was a life lived in vain. Even they measure the worth of a man's life by how many they have helped and positively influenced. Those men and women's lives should rightly shame us. You know why? 
Because on their own, they came to the understanding that the purpose of life is greater than their own lives. We, even with God revealing to us that the great purpose is, what that great purpose is, we still fail to live for anything other than ourselves. And that should rightly shame us. You see, as wonderful as a country is with all that it represents, freedom, liberty, democracy, protection for the weak, it is still not the ultimately worthy cause because a country is not God. As precious as millions of starving children are, it's still not the ultimately worthy cause because children are not God. Here we are given eyes to see how utterly worthy and precious God is, yet we still fail to see or fail to give our lives wholly to Him. And therein lies your constant battle with, with insignificance, your constant battle with meaning, with purpose. It's because you failed to live for that great cause, that ultimate cause, that right cause that glorious cause, God's glory. The greatest argument for this is found in the life of Jesus. Surely, if there was anyone who was wise enough to discern what the true meaning of life was, it was Jesus. Surely, Jesus' cause is the greatest cause. Surely, what Jesus lived for is the greatest thing anyone could live for. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 4, verse 31 to 34. John chapter 4, verse 31 to 34. I really like this passage, this little episode. John chapter 4. It's a little bit more back, yeah. Oh, not that back. You know what, if you guys can't turn to it, just listen very carefully, yeah? All right. Here's John chapter 4, verse 31 to 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And the disciples were urging Jesus. Urging implies a serious concern. The disciples were genuinely worried for Jesus' physical health. With all the traveling, all the preaching, all that Jesus was doing. With all the energy exerted by Jesus, they were seriously concerned that Jesus wasn't eating enough. And that if he didn't eat something right away, he may collapse. So they urged him to eat something. And Jesus responds, I have food to eat that you do not know about. If I was there, I was like, what What have you discovered, Jesus? Is there some steak that I haven't tried? Are you talking about some, you know, bluefin tuna belly that I haven't tried yet? What out of this world food are you talking about, Jesus? And then I'll turn to you, what did he eat? Who brought him something? He responds, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So what is this incredible food that you speak about, Jesus? 
Well, Jesus was referring to some kind of out of this world food, wasn't he? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The out of this world food that Jesus was referring to was the will of God, the work of God. What Paul describes here as God's glory. You see, food is a perfect illustration. Food is what nourishes us. Food is what gives us energy. Food is what brings us joy. Food is what sustains us. And just as food does all those things, so too does the desire to glorify God. The thought of glorifying God, His Father, nourished Jesus. It gave Him energy. It gave Him satisfaction. It gave Him purpose. It sustained Him. It brought a smile to His face in anticipation. It brought Him joy. It was enough for Him to measure the cost and give His life for it. This is the food that Jesus wants us to know about purpose, namely to glorify God. So many of us have been taught the gospel the wrong way. So many of us have received and perceived it in the wrong way. We like that the gospel makes much of us. We like the gospel because we perceive that it is all about God's love for us. We love to speak of how much Jesus loved us. That he would even die for us. To understand the gospel that way is not to understand it at all. To understand the sacrifice of Christ that way is not to understand it at all. To see the gospel as the ultimate self-help formula is to not see the gospel at all. For you see, the gospel is through and through, not about you or me primarily, but it is about God. It is about His glory. All for His glory. Look at verses 3 to 14. What begins verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This part as much as we read it and want to see that it's about us, how He redeemed us, how He's blessed us, it's in the context of bringing glory to God, of praise to God. If the gospel was a birthday party, what you and I need to know that it is, is that it's not our birthday. You know, I read this in, in our little book. You know, we all act like you know, that kid, there's a huge birthday party and this one kid's getting all the gifts and there's a kid in the corner going, where's mine? And he's all sad. And mom goes up to him and says, son, it's not your birthday. <laughs> if the gospel's a birthday party, it's not your birthday. It's for the glory of God. This is not to say that we do not benefit greatly from the gospel. But whatever blessings we receive, it's in the shadow of God's glory. The gospel is not man-centered, man-geared, and man-centric. 
The gospel is God-centered, God-geared, and God-centric. Our forgiveness and redemption is not meant to make much of us, but to glorify the God whose storehouse of grace is so abundantly full of grace and mercy and kindness that He would forgive and redeem such worms, such scum as us. My salvation does not declare that I'm infinitely lovable. My salvation declares that God is infinitely lovely. So much so that He would extend it even to me. This is why Paul said things like, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Why? Because Jesus told him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul adds, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul understood that at the heart and foundation of the gospel was the glory of God. He understood that the role he played in that cosmic purpose. In my weakness, God's power is demonstrated all the more. In my sinfulness, God's love is demonstrated all the more. In my utter unworthiness, God's worthiness is manifested all the more. A commentator says, The story of history is the story of the Lord's glory. It calls me to an agenda that is bigger than myself. It offers me something truly worth living for. The Redeemer has come so that glory thieves would joyfully live for the glory of another. Milton writes of Paradise Lost. What was the paradise that was lost? Was it life of no pain? Was it the life of no heartaches, no mourning, no disease, no illnesses, and no death? Was that the paradise we lost? I would argue that the paradise that was lost was us living for the purpose with which we were created. We were created to live holy for the glory of God. Paradise was a place where lawnmowers were mowing lawns, acres and acres of lawns. We are lost because we have lost our purpose. What, what the gospel does is restore that cosmic purpose in you and me. Jesus died on the cross that we may now be free of our self-centeredness, our insatiable desire for self-glory, and our ugly selfishness. He died so that we can enjoy the paradise of living for God's glory. Even as I say that, I feel like I need to come up with a list of reasons why you should believe it. But I feel like you know it inherently deep within you. You're lost not because of your sins. You're lost because sin has stripped you of the purpose for which you were created. Which is to glorify God. To praise Him. To worship Him. To wholly live for another who is utterly worthy of your life. We try to find substitutions in life, don't we? We marry someone and we're going to say she's the one. He's the one I'm going to live wholly for. But dear friends, that's an inadequate substitution. For your wife and your husband is not God. They are not worthy for your entire lives. 
we try to find substitution by giving our lives to the great cause, whether we join the army, whether we join the fight to end human trafficking. In a certain measure, it helps. You're doing something for others. But dear friends, even that is not going to fully substitute what you and I have been created for. It's just a foretaste. It's just a glimpse that proves and shows in your heart of hearts you know that you were created to praise and worship and glorify God. This may be an unfamiliar gospel presentation, but it's the true gospel presented in its truest form. God loved, Christ died, and the Holy Spirit ministered that we may live holy for God's glory. If you understand this, you would understand this is what you get for coming up with the illustration on the fly while you're trying to end the sermon. You know those toys that have, you know, circle forms, triangle forms, square forms? You try to teach your young kids to kind of fit this circle into this and triangle into that. And, and they're trying so desperately to fit a, a circle into a triangle, a triangle into a square. I feel like that's what you're going to do with your lives if you don't understand this truth. You were fashioned, you were formed, you were created to fit something. Namely, glorifying God with your whole lives. Let's pray.